0: Our Father, again, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this fall weather uh, where it's not blazing hot and a morning where we can uh, not sweat on the way to church. Um, We are glad in this day that you've made. Father, I thank you for uh, gathering your people. I pray that the gospel is made known among us this morning. I pray that as we go through your word in Micah and as I speak this morning that you will say what you want said to each one of us, that you would have each one of us hear what you want our uh, ears to hear. Lord, Holy Spirit, move in our hearts, open our eyes to know your great love for us, and uh, and cause us to confess the truth about who you are and who you've made us, and help us to turn to you and run. We love you and praise you, in Jesus' name, amen. So can people change? Can people change? And if people can change... What makes the change happen, right? Can people change? And if they can change, what is it that changes a person? I'm sure that you guys have all seen clips of this. I know not everybody's a sports fan, but you've got to have seen something like this before, where like a football player grabs a fumble, uh, picks up the ball, and starts running towards the end zone, but he's going the wrong direction, right? Or maybe on like a basketball game or something, the, the, the shooter, the basketball player man, right? <laughs> I like sports, but anyways, right? Uh, he gets it and he's going towards the wrong basketball goal, right? It can happen in just about any uh, sport. But anyways, you've seen it. It's kind of hilarious. It's also a little bit heartbreaking because you know that that person thinks they're about to score for their team, right? And they think they're like, I mean, they're like the hero in the moment. Uh, and nothing's going to stop them going to score but essentially they're going to be scoring on the on themselves and the only thing that can happen is if maybe their teammates can get to them in time and get in front of them and be like stop go the other direction right they have to get in his or her way and convince them to turn around and go the opposite direction so what can get in our way what can make us change? What can make us see that we're, we're even going the wrong direction, that we even need to change? Well, this morning we're talking, uh, we're taking a look at the book of Micah. Uh, it's a tiny book in the Old Testament. It's kind of near the back. It's in one, what's called, the, the, the group of books It's called the Minor Prophets. And it's between two other very tiny books called Jonah and Nahum, both which we covered in the spring. And Micah, we're going to be moving through Micah over the next few weeks, for the next month, basically. Now, most don't immediately go uh, to the book of Micah or most other minor prophets, for that matter, for an encouraging word, because in these books, as we've already seen, uh, like in the spring, there's a lot of promises of what God will do to nations who stand against his people, and it's not pretty, right? Right? And there's also a lot of promises of like future destruction and exile for even God's own people. And those things actually became a reality. We know that from history. And Micah is no different. This is a collection of this prophet's sermons during the reign of King Jotham and King Ahaz and King Hezekiah in the kingdom of Judah. And Micah in this book, is calling out rulers. He's calling out the powers, the the, the rulers of his own people. And he's preaching the power about what power truly looks like. And how wrongly they are wielding the power that they've been given. How they misunderstand the truth about who God is, and who they are, and how they are walking in sin and leading the nation in the same direction. How they're running with the ball the wrong way. And it gets pretty rough, and it gets pretty vivid. But, Micah, like the other prophets, the other minor prophets, is not all doom and gloom. In chapter four of this little book, Micah looks toward what he calls the mountain of the Lord, where God will rule the nations, where swords will be beat into plowshares and spears will be turned into pruning hooks. He sort of looks to this garden city that we kind of talked about a few weeks ago, out of when we were looking in Revelation. And he looks towards that and calls the people to look forward. And in looking forward, he's calling God's people to remember God for who he really is and what he does and how that should lead them to live. Micah, in this book, we're going to see is calling God's people to lead the way in doing justice and loving kindness and walking humbly with God, as we just sang. He's calling them to be that people, to lead the way in in this And doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with God. And he's assuring them that God will deliver on his future promises as they remember his proven faithfulness and his steadfast love from their own history. And we've been talking about this too over uh, the last few weeks in our last uh, series. And while there's a lot different about like our context today in the United States of America in Augusta, Georgia versus the time of Micah, I think there's also... Much of what Micah says that we still need to hear and we still need to act on, even at Redemption Church. Namely, this truth that we need to hear is that the church, God's people, should be leading the way in justice and mercy and compassion and kindness as we walk humbly with our God we kind of said this last week we said it in a different way we said we want to make the real Jesus known by being honest about our failures loving the way that he loves serving the city for the good of all and inviting everybody into the family of God we want to make the real Jesus known but to live the way that we should live we got to be transformed We need to be transformed. We need to be changed. We need the good news of how God has proven who He really is in the person and work of Jesus to get in our way. We need the gospel to get us to get in our way and to show us where we are running in the wrong direction and convince us to turn around and run the right direction. We need the gospel. We need the gospel to reveal the ways in which we are failing to believe the truth about who God is and what he does and who that makes us. And we need the gospel to open our eyes to see our failures. So we can see our sin and we can see our inability to do what only God can do. Now, I already said it, but over this past year, we've made our way through several of the minor prophets. We started with Jonah, uh, then we went to Amos, then we did Hosea, and then we did Nahum, and we did all those in the spring, and then over the summer we took a break and did First John because, well, these books are really good, but they're also really heavy, and you got to come up for air, right? But the plan is to go through all of the Minor Prophets uh, as we go through the end of next year, and we'll have more breaks along the way because it's just too much, uh, and I, I just want to tell you why we're doing that this morning. Why are we going through the Minor Prophets? Or we're spending a lot of time in the minor prophets prophets for a couple reasons, but foremost, it's because they're the most unfamiliar books of the Bible for most Christians, I think. And honestly, they can be a little challenging to get through and to find good news in. Like I said, there's some dark, heavy stuff there. But what we really want for us at Redemption Church is to be a people who are fluent in the gospel. Meaning like we could spot the good news of Jesus Christ and we can articulate the good news of Jesus Christ uh, of who God is and what he does and, and, and what that makes us. We could spot it and articulate it just about anywhere. And we especially want us to be able to harvest the good news of Jesus from all of Scripture. And we want you to be able to recognize and apply the good news in all of life with one another. And so, as we go through the Minor Prophets, it's a good practice for us as a church. This is a hard place maybe to harvest the gospel. So if you can harvest the gospel here, then the idea is that you'll be able to harvest it anywhere in the Scripture. It's just good practice. In the spring, like I said, we preached through it. But I really want us to start working through this stuff together in the fall. And as we make our way through Micah, I really want you to start reading it with one another. I want you to start reading Micah together over the next few weeks and practice asking four questions of the Scripture as you go. And this is what we're going to talk about this morning. Practice asking four questions of the Scripture. We've put them in front of you for for some time on the bulletins that are on there this morning. And we've talked through them a little bit before, but, but we want you to start using them regularly as you study Uh, together in your missional communities and dnas and in your family we want you to start using these questions as you look through scripture and this morning by way of introduction to this series in micah what i want to do is walk through these four questions together and i want us to see how powerful they can be in allowing god's word to like get in our way and transform our lives and help us to turn help us to change and these are the four questions like i said they're in your bulletin who is god what has he done, specifically in and through Jesus Christ? Who am I, and how should I live? Who is God? What has he done? Who am I? How should I live? These, these questions, I think, are really confessional. When we answer them, they're confessions. Like, as we go through these questions, we'll find ourselves confessing what is truth, and then we'll be confessing what is sin. And I hope that we'll see together even this morning that there's power in these confessions that can lead us to repent, that can lead us to change, that can lead us to stop running in the wrong direction and start running in the right way. So as we look in the book of Micah, I'm just going to jump right in and we're going to get into these questions. The first question is who is God? Here's what Micah makes evident in this book. There's, there's more to be said in Micah and we're going to get to that, uh, but, there's, but he at least says this. And at the beginning of the book, In Micah 1, 2 through 5, it says this. It says, Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Encouraging stuff, right? So we ask the question. We read the scripture and then we ask the question, who is God according to this passage, according to this description, what is he like? And there's, there's more than this here, but I'm just going to give us a couple. One is he is powerful. Did you hear that in the scripture? Like mountains melt under him, valleys split open. Right? That's that's power. We also see that he's concerned with justice. Like he is just. He's set up from the temple as a judge, witnessing against his people, coming to repay, repay transgressions and sin. That's in the beginning of the book. God is powerful, God is just. It at least says that, it says more. God is powerful. God is just. And then at the end of the book, Micah chapter 7, 18 through 20, listen to what it says there. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. In the first part, we saw his power, we saw his justice, his coming to deal with our transgressions and and his people's sin. And here we see God pardoning sin and passing over transgression, having compassion and treading iniquities under his feet instead of mountains and valleys. So who is God here? God is merciful. He's more than that, but at least God is merciful. And Micah is sort of bookended by these truths about who God is. He's powerful, he's just, and he deals with sin, and he deals with sinners accordingly, and he's also full of mercy and love and compassion, and he's forgiving. God is all these things. None of them are conflicting. He is these things. That is who God is. If we ask the question, who is God, then God is those things. He's merciful and just and powerful and loving and compassionate and forgiving. That's who he is. We can confess all those things to be true because Scripture says it's true of him. And Micah says it here. Okay, so we've answered the first question. Like I said, we're just practicing together this morning, okay? So you got your bulletin out. You can just be tracking through these questions with me. What's the next question? Good answer. What does God do? I'm just teasing. In Micah 6, 3 through 5, it says this. And it's God who speaks. says, O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shudom to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. See here, the scripture starts reminding God's people what He has done in the past. Right? What has He done in the past? He's delivered them, He's redeemed them, He's saved them, and He's acted justly with them. With their oppressors, He's acted justly. And this is He's bringing this up. He's helping, calling this past, and and calling these things into remembrance to provoke a belief in the truth by proving what God has done. In the past, and then in Micah five two through three, I know we're just we're just all over the place. We're just gonna we're just gonna read the whole book. Uh, Micah five two through three. Now Micah looks forward. He just looked past in the back in, uh, in, uh, in the past to see what God has done, and now he looks forward to see what God has promised to still do. He says, "But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you." shall come forth from me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Did Micah know uh, the fullness of what was to come in and through Jesus, who was to be born in Bethlehem? Probably not. But he did have a promise. Right? He did have a promise, and he knew God's promises to those who came before him, to King David, who came from Bethlehem. right. And this prophecy is like a reminder that the God who made them a people, the God who redeemed them, the God who made them a nation and more, had also promised King David that his heir would sit on the throne forever. So this is a prophecy of future hope. It says, God is still at work. He isn't done. He is faithful, and He is just, and He is powerful enough to deliver on His promises. So if we're asking what God does and we're looking to the future, delivering on His promises is what God does. And this bit of prophecy here, I mean, it points directly to Jesus, right? Who we know did more than just rescue people from Egypt. That was just a foreshadowing of things to come because through his death and resurrection he demonstrated God's power to save people from the grip of death by defeating death himself. He he did justly by dealing with sin, paying its wages with his own life and he showed mercy. He stepped down from heaven to make a way for us who had no mercy and he showed us ultimate mercy. So what does God do? That's the second question. What does God do? He works powerfully to do justice and to show mercy. At very least, he does that. It's all here in Micah. God is powerful, he's just, he's merciful, and he acts accordingly. And in Jesus, who is pointed to in Micah and throughout all of Scripture, anywhere you look, he's pointed to. It's all proven to be true. So third question. Now we ask this of the Scripture. Who are we? Who are we? We just read Micah 6, 3 through 5 a minute ago, but if we just go back to 6, 3 and just see what it says. It just starts out and says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? You see it? You see what God says? Oh, my people. That's how God identifies this people. The people he's reproving throughout the book are the same people he delivered, the same people who he has saved. The same people he's made promises to save in the future. And he's called them his own. And that's who they are. He's reproving them and he's still calling them his people. It's like we talked about last week. He made them a people. They are called by God for a purpose to make him known in all the earth. And it's a different time. It's a different day. It's a different place for us today. But, but God's people, Right? But we are God's people, and God's people are not a nation. It's not like, it's not, it's not like that. It's not like it was in Israel or in Judah. It's, it's not like the U.S. or any other country is God's people. No, like God, through the work of Jesus, has made a way for the salvation of many from all over to come and to be called his own. If we are saved, we are his people. We are his. We are his family. We are his beloved children, as we read last, uh, a couple weeks ago in 1 John this is the truth then. That's what we confess about who we really are when we read this scripture. We are his people. So if that's who we are, the last question is how then should we live? How should we live? That's the last question. And I think Micah answers it very succinctly and clearly in chapter 6, verse 8. It just says, has, He has told you, O man, what is good, And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? How should we live? We should lead the way in bringing justice and and mercy to bear as we walk with our God and make him known. Because that's what he's really like. That's how we should live. In light of who he is and what he's done and who he's made us, that's how we should live. Now, all that's very quick, and it's just kind of jumping all over Micah, I know. It's a very like, high up, kind of aerial view of Micah. We haven't dissected the whole thing, but I want you to see that in answering those questions, we are confessing what the Scripture says is truth. That's what I really want us to get at this morning as we practice this. I just want, to see, I want us to see that as we answer those questions, we're confessing what the Scripture says is truth, and there's power in the confession of the truth of the scripture. And I also want you to see that there's power in our confession of sin. Like Micah's purpose in preaching these sermons is to do both of those things, right? To confess uh, the truth of who God is and what he does and who we are, and then to confess and proclaim our sin. He says it in chapter 3, verse 8, but as for me, this is his purpose, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. His purpose in, this, uh, in, in these sermons is to declare to God's people their sins. And scholars and commentators, uh, I think, would all agree that Micah isn't writing or preaching just to show them their sin, but to convince them to turn from it. Convince them to turn around. He's trying to get in their way and get them to run towards God, towards His truth, towards His way, to run in the right direction. And to turn or to repent, people must first become aware of the truth and the reality of their sin and confess. So, when we kind of get to the bottom of it, when we've gone through those, those four questions and we finally get to the bottom of it and we've identified how we uh, should live, then we should look for the gap between how we actually live versus how we should live when rooted in the truth. So we just ask this question. I'm going to practice this with you. Ask this question, how do we actually live? Like we should be leading the way and doing justice and in loving mercy and walking humbly with our God, but, but how do we actually live? I'll take an attempt to answer really broadly but we could say that the church in our culture i think is pretty consumeristic like even at here even here at redemption church it's a reality it's something that's even true of myself like i can put my personal comfort and my wants before others we can put our corporate comforts even before the needs of those who are outside of the family at our church maybe we're even willing to turn a blind eye to how our our, our consumerism actually oppresses others in some way. Maybe we even oppress each other. Like when we look to be churchgoers instead of church members. And, and what I mean by that is that we look to like come and take uh, without serving also. We just look to come and go, you know, to go to church uh, and, and not to give to church. We look to come and take, take, take without serving also. We look to be fed by the sacrifices of others without offering sacrifices ourselves. See, if we're answering the question of how do we live versus how should we live, well, we should be living a life that leads the way in mercy and in justice. But that's hard to do when we're busy feeding ourselves, maybe turning a blind eye the oppression of others or even like actively stepping, actively stepping on or stepping over others to prop ourselves up for our own uh, comfort. And if we are people who could be honest about our failures, we c- could probably all make the confession that we've done that, that it's true of the way we live, maybe even of how we live together and how we take part in our culture and live in, in that as well. So if we could identify that as the gap between how we do live and how we should live, then we just start working backwards, right? Working backwards through the questions. If this is the way we live, then what does it say about who we believe we are? In Micah 3.11, the prophet makes a powerful indictment. Speaking of Judah, he says, Its heads, like its, its rulers, its leaders, give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in our midst, in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. In other words, they step on others, they prop themselves up in unjust ways, and they presume on God because of who they think they are. They are proud of themselves. They think they've got God on their side, almost like they could even weaponize God. God is in their midst for their power. God is in their midst for their comfort. They think themselves powerful, important, entitled, and I think invincible. And I think that maybe it rings true for us. Do we prop ourselves up above others in unjust ways, believing that being God's people makes us important or entitled and powerful and somewhat invincible? Perhaps that could be our confession as well. Even though it sounds wrong, right? There could be something true about it. The Scripture says that we are God's people. We are His people but we could actually be believing that God is ours and that we are invincible. So let's keep working it backwards, practicing together. If that's what we're believing about who we are, then what do we actually believe God has done? Well, if that's us, then we believe God serves us, right? Like that maybe he exists to serve us is what I mean. Like he grants us wishes. He makes sure that we have a nice life and a nice afterlife. And maybe if we're totally honest, we could confess that we believe that he hasn't done so much for us as we've done for him. I know it sounds awful, right? But we could. We could kind of believe that deep down. Like, we haven't done, he hasn't done that much for us. We've done a lot for him. Like, if we didn't give our tithes and our offerings to the church, if we didn't put forth an effort to keep him around and to go to church on Sundays, then we could probably make it on our own, and people wouldn't even know about him. It sounds kind of bad, but it's okay. Like, we can confess that we believe nasty, crazy things like this deep down. The good news in our confession of the truth that we already have gone through gives us the ability to confess our failures and our sin. It's supposed to open our eyes to our running in the wrong direction so that we can see it. So if God serves us, we work it back to the first question. Who is he? Who is God? What do we really believe about who he is? You know, my kids have been watching Aladdin I went on ahead and bought the combo package and got both movies on the Apple TV. So I've been watching a lot of like the Robin Williams genie and the Will Smith genie. We'll talk about that later about who's better. But I can't help but see like that blue genie pop out of the lamp announcing his presence like, genie of the lamp, you know what I'm talking about? And then he like explains the rules and and how he's going to grant three wishes, but only three wishes, and how he himself is actually captive to the master of the lamp. And the only way he can be set free is if the master wishes him free. I can't help but see that and think, maybe that's who we believe God really is. Like he's a genie of the lamp. The most powerful being in the world, but not more powerful than us his masters. And maybe we think he's partial. Like he's not really concerned with justice for all. He's concerned about his master and what they want and what makes them comfortable. And he's really not that concerned with sin. It can't be. He's more concerned with forgiveness. It makes him a little weak. Maybe he's a little needy. God is weak, God is needy, God is my servant. Like, do you feel that in your gut? Like, that's wrong, right? Like, when I say it, it's wrong. But also, we know that we, we've got to know that we've kind of believed that kind of stuff at a heart level. That's why we live the way we live. That's why there's a gap at the other end of this thing is because we believe wrongly about who God is. And we're just not awakened to it. We're running the wrong direction. That's the power in confessing the reality of our sinful hearts and beliefs. Because as soon as we say it out loud in comparison with what we confess to believe is true, that He's powerful, that He's just, that He's merciful, it exposes how far we've drifted from the truth when we're actually saying, Man, God is weak and needy, and he's my servant. There's power in confessing and being honest about our failures because it exposes our own weakness and our actual need for the truth of it all, our actual need for the good news of Jesus because we can't fix this on our own. We are actually blind to it on our own. We need to be transformed. So what do we do? We confess the truth. We confess our sin, we repent, we stop running the wrong direction and turn and run with Jesus and run towards Jesus, and we do good. We confess, we repent, and we do good. The good news of who God is and what He's done in Jesus and who that makes us, that's what transforms us. It is what gets in our way and makes a way for us to change. And I want us to be a people at Redemption Church who are so fluent in the gospel that we're able to find this everywhere we look. I think Micah is a great place to start practicing together. I think all of the minor prophets are a great place to start practicing together. So over the next few weeks, we can and we will see the gospel throughout this book as we ask these questions together and we confess the truth and we confess our sin together. The the book As a whole, the call of the book is to confess, repent, and do good. To lead the way as God's people in doing justice, in loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. And if we would make the real Jesus known at Redemption Church by being honest about our failures, and loving the way he loves, and serving the city for the good of all, and inviting everybody into the family of God, then we'll need to be a people who are able to confess, and repent, and turn to Jesus. And we're going to need some practice. As we go about this practice, I think that you can be assured, I know you can be assured, He is faithful to transform you, to transform our hearts and transform our minds. So I'm asking you this morning to just actually practice this together throughout our time in Micah and Joel, which is next, Joel is next. I'm asking you to set aside some time to read through these books slowly with each other over the next few weeks, over the next couple months, and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. Start asking these questions as you go. Who is God according to this passage? Who am I? Or who, what does he do, specifically in and through Jesus? Who am I? How should I live? And then identify the gap between the way you should live and the way you do live. And work it back. Work it back again to find out the truth about what you really are believing. And then confess, repent, and do good. I guess I'm asking you to practice, and I'm, I'm saying get like, get with your family. Get with your DNA group. Get with your missional community and start practicing, confessing, and repenting together. Get help from others because this, you can like... Get stumped on some of these, you know. You're, you don't have to do it alone. We can help each other uh, where we're struggling to answer the questions, and we can show each other the good news of Jesus in the scripture. And I think one of the difficulties in getting us to do this is that it's it feels hard. It feels like we hold back automatically from confessing to one another for many reasons, I think. I think it feels intimate, it feels uncomfortable, right? It feels like you're being exposed, it feels like you're going to be judged. We don't want people to see us vulnerable. We don't want, to see, want people to see us weak. We don't want people to see us as a failure, which all of that uh, is revealing of, of who we believe God is and what he's done and who we really are. But my experience, honestly, is that it's easier than we think once we have confessed what is true together. When we work through those first, through, uh, first four questions together from Scripture and we've confessed all the truths about who God is and what He does and who that makes us, it starts to get really easy to confess with one another because the truth like, exposes everybody in the room as weak and failures and sinful. It exposes everybody as in being in need of mercy and we don't judge others around the table who are confessing, we start to have mercy on each other. I experience this pretty often in our gospel fluency class and in the DNA group and in lots of different settings that I've been in. We don't judge others around the table who are confessing. We have mercy because we're, we're receiving mercy at the same moment as we confess, right? We're actually hearing each other confess and we're going like, yeah, that's something I need to confess too. And then we like strive together to see how Jesus is better than we thought. And it's really powerful stuff. It's really transformational stuff. And I want it for you. So I'm asking you to practice together. Will you practice together over the next month or two? And just let's see how God changes us as a church. As we practice, I'm expectant. I'm already hearing people doing this in DNAs and stuff, and I'm hearing stories. So I'm expectant, and I'm looking to hear stories of heart change. And to see how God will change us into a people who are fluent in the gospel and who are bearing a fresh witness of who Jesus is to one another and to others. Who are bearing witness to each other of how great God really is. And I look forward to see how God continues to make us a people who are leading the way in justice and in mercy and in kindness and in compassion and in love as we walk with our God. We're going to move into a time of response as we do each week. And uh, there's a couple ways that we're going to do this. One is there's a giving basket in the back where you can give your tithes and your offerings uh, as an as a act of worship, as an act of obedience um, to God. So if you're a part of Redemption Church, that's there for you. If you need instructions on how to give other ways, that's back there as well. And each week we take communion. They, we come down these side aisles here. And uh, we take the bread and we dip it in the wine or the juice. The bread represents the body of Christ that was given for us. And the, the juice and the wine represent the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And as we do this, we're, we're proclaiming to one another the truth. That Jesus is who he said he is. That he's done what he said he would do. That it's making God known for who he really is. And that we are his. We're proclaiming that to one another and helping each other remember so if you're a Christian, whether you're at Redemption, a member of Redemption Church or not, we invite you to come and proclaim and remember Christ together in that way. And then the band is going to come, and they're going to take communion, and they're going to lead us in and through this time of worship together uh, through singing. So would you pray with me as we move into that? Our Father, thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you're making Christ known in all of Scripture and that in Christ you're making yourself known to us, that he's the image of the invisible God, that through him we can know who you really are. We can know what you've done and who you've made us. God, get in our way. Get the Holy Spirit in our way. Move our hearts so we can see the truth of your great love for us. Help us to see where we failed, where we're weak, where we're in sin. And make us turn around. Help us to repent. Help us to have courage and faith, knowing that you are good and loving, and that you're going to take care of us as we turn to you and run towards Jesus Christ. That it'll be good for us, and that it'll be good for the people around us, and it'll be good for our city, and it'll be good for the whole world. And in all of it, it'll glorify your name. Help us as we study your scripture together. Help us as we ask these questions to, to, to see the truth about who you are and who we are as your people. Help us to, to have courage to lean in with each other and point out some sin with each other and, and, and bring the gospel to bear on each other's lives, not in judgment, but in mercy. Or help us be a people who are just, where it's evident that we are striving together for the faith of the gospel.